this is Scott Reitz with Brett McQueen, and welcome to ITTS, International Tactical Training Seminars. Our podcast is with Deadly Force, and we have a wonderful guest today of historical significance with the LAPD, the original SWAT team, and that is Ron McCarthy, better known as 20 David. Welcome to our podcast, uh, Sergeant McCarthy. And if you would like to just give us a brief summation of your, you know, your background and uh, what you did for LAPD over many years and, and your association with Scott, and we'd love to hear all about that. Well, the, my background with LAPD, it all started when I read a book called Parker on Police when I was in the Navy. And uh, it was a book uh, uh, that uh, had uh, contained uh, William H. Parker, police chief in L.A. at the time, all of his uh, writings, and he was a real genius. Literally, he was a genius. And uh, in any event, uh, I read Parker on Police, and that got me interested in wanting to be an LAPD officer. I thought, I want to work for that man. And uh, so I applied, and uh, uh, fortunately, I made it through the background, which was a little scary because you, know, you, you never know what's going to pop up in your background, but got on the job and uh, uh, went to work in 77th Street Division. And my first partner um, was uh, uh, working a, a felony car uh, about a month after I got there. And uh, he was shot and killed by a bad guy that was robbing uh, Lucky Auto Supply. And uh, his name was Richard D. Kent, the officer. And uh, he walked in on an armed robbery not knowing that. And when he got back to the counter where the cash register and the employees were, um, the suspect just shot him in the chest, didn't say anything, and then ran out. And uh, so that was a a very significant lesson for me and probably for others also. Uh, He had, uh, he was wearing plain clothes, working a felony car, but he had his badge on his belt and his spare ammunition carrier on his belt and it could be seen. So uh, he walked in and Although he was in plain clothes, the bad guy immediately knew he was a cop and shot him. What what, a, what what year? That's that's unbelievable. Yeah, you know, and that's and you go back. What year was that that you came on, Ron? Nineteen uh, nineteen sixty. Wow! Holy smokes! So that is, yeah. And you look at and back then, uh, body armor was pretty much non-existent. Conceivable body armor is that correct? Yeah, it didn't exist. Basically, you just had the wool shirt or whatever you were wearing, yes? Yeah, okay. that was it. When when you left uh, from 77th, uh, where did you transfer to? I went to uh, West L.A., which was agony for me. Because <laughs> it was like going from the kind of work I really enjoyed, which was very, very busy in 77th, as you know. And uh, West L.A. was terrible. So as soon as I got there, I was already looking for a place to go. And four months later, I got to go. They called it the wheel. 
and you went to three different geographic divisions while you were on probation. And I went from West LA to Central, and that was much better. And uh, worked Central Division, and with the idea in mind that I always wanted to go back to 77th. And as soon as I was off probation, I did. Outstanding. How long were you at 77th? After I was on back? 77th until uh, I, I came to Metro. So I worked 77th patrol, obviously, when I first started, and then 77th vice. And then uh, I applied. I went back to patrol in 77th and applied uh, to Metro Division and came to Metro in 1965. When when you went to Metro, where were they located at that point? Oh, gosh. Was that, uh, they was that were down where the state center okay. in room number 114. Mm-hmm. That's where the radio call sign ah. 114 came from. It the uh, it was on the first floor of Parker Center, and that was the original office where 52 officers and supervision worked. And uh, when it, they came up with radios and needed uh, um, officers at handhelds, and, and they uh, just called Metro 114 because that's where we were. And, it yeah, stuck. Mm-hmm. What's amazing is that they have the original door that was refurbished by an officer that just recently passed away, but he refurbished the door and they have it on display at the, at Metro's facilities now in the old Rampart station. And it's been completely restored. Well, some of the best cops in the world walk through that door. Yeah. Well, that's the truth. And there, I remember as a young uh, recruit in 1976, Seeing guys with T-shirts on, had the Metro Tux, as we used to say back then. Uh, I didn't know what it was, but that for listeners that don't know what a Metro Tux is, it is a uh, basically a white T-shirt. It would either say Metro One One or One One Four, just simply the numbers, or Metropolitan Division's logo or SWAT, and that was worn in conjunction with your just blue wool pants and shoes or boots, and that was generally at the end of watch. And you see guys walking around with that. And I later found out that was called a Metro Tux. <laughs> yep, that was it. And uh, what was what are your recollections of Metro back then in, in, in 1965? Uh, it was uh, uh, a, a perfect place for guys that want to do field police work and uh, how it worked was that uh, they would uh, uh, do there in Metro, uh, we had civilian workers also, and they would do crime statistics in the different divisions, and they would know where the crime was being committed. And not every captain and lieutenant commander um liked Metro Division and liked Metro Division officers. Uh, for some reason, Metro Division, and the Met- it's kind of like the SWAT concept, as you'll recall. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a lot of people that wanted to see SWAT fail because, after all, they weren't there and they weren't in it, and therefore it had no value or they would have been there. That's, I think, what their problem was. And uh, Metro was the same way. So although Metro had been on LAPD, in LAPD since 1933, it went through uh, cyclical changes as the crime 
um, in LA changed and different crimes were committed. And uh, we did a lot of stakeouts back then because there was a lot of armed robberies of liquor stores and uh, shops and uh, that were busy, especially during Christmas holidays and banks. We used to do inside stakes in the banks in a suit and tie uh, because that's what the workers wore. So we were trying to fit in. And uh, then uh, during uh, the Christmas holidays, the liquor stores got robbed a lot. And in uh, one of those years early on, uh, uh, Metro shot and killed 17 bandits inside the liquor stores in the month of December. And uh, that got uh, some people in the department upset. And it was like, well, the, all the shootings were good. All of the suspects had guns in their hand. No citizens were injured, no employees of the liquor store, and no cops were injured. But that didn't seem to have any effect. Um, it was all about well, what's the LA Times going to say? And of course, if that's what you're concerned with, you're uh, not going to be making smart decisions and good decisions for police officers and citizens. You're just going to try to make the LA Times not talk about you. Well, I remember that in Metro, especially in SWAT, when I worked under you, and we'll talk about that in a little bit, but I can remember when we used to do the rock house warrants that we would come out and you would have citizens out there clapping and thanking us for uh, almost, you know, it was like a armed takeover of a certain block by some of these gang members where they just intimidated everybody. And, you know, you just, you felt like you had accomplished something for the time being where you were helping out good, decent, honest citizens that were just trying to live their lives. And I think, uh, Sometimes that gets lost in the morass of, uh, you know, people's beliefs or feelings or politics or whatever. And there are good people out there that do need to be defended. And I think, uh, you know, in my experience was in Metro. And just as an aside, I remember the first day in SWAT, you pinned me up against the wall and said, don't you ever, ever, you know, do something that is going to dishonor D-Team, Metro, and uh if you I apologize. Like, no, no, yeah. For, for my personality, that was the right thing that to was do. The best thing you could have done. Yeah, I was, uh, I was scared to death of you. And I go, okay, this is a different world. So at that point, I go, this is on the dark side of the moon for me. Well, one of the nice things was that, uh, and I'm not uh, in any way exaggerating. Uh, uh, you. Uh, happened to idolize the right guy named John Helms. And uh, I think you thought a lot of John Helms. And then I think uh, you worked with John Helms and Larry Mudgett. Uh, oh, yeah. If, and, uh, <laughs> yeah, we were on the same team. Yes. And uh, I think that uh, was the right thing because you admired how they did their work. And uh, they did their work very intelligently, and and that's the way you went down. You went down that road. You did really well. Yep, absolutely. So you're in Metro, and uh, you know that was basically, as I look at, it, as a crime strike division. Uh, Metro was deployed where crime kind of got out of hand, especially violent crime, where the standard field grade officer wasn't. You know, they just simply had too many other things to do where they couldn't respond to that. 
And so that was kind of like a crime strike force, if you will. And then you have SWAT. And you came into SWAT in what year, about 67? Yeah. Yep. And what was it like back then? Uh, it was uh, a, uh, a part of Metro. So we were doing exactly the same thing the other uh, uh, sections of Metro, uh, C platoon, B platoon, uh, same kind of work they did on a daily basis doing crime suppression in busy divisions. And, uh, and then uh, if we got a call out or something, or there was a narcotics warrant service that had to be accomplished, and uh, we would dress in uh, kind of uh, dark Navy blue fatigues. We didn't have body armor originally back then. And then uh, as time went on, uh, Somebody came up with body armor, fortunately, and of course, uh, there was no money to buy it. That was a problem, and uh, so it was quite a while before we got body armor, and uh, eventually, we got body armor, fortunately. Like at the SLA thing, uh, I didn't have any body armor. You're kidding. Uh, Nobody did, no. Uh, well, holy smokes. Well, I, yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people take that for granted. You look at all the equipment and we'll talk about that later, but all the equipment people have now, and it's just, it's eye-watering and the resources. And back then, I, for lack of better terminology, I think you had to, you know, you had to live by your wits and your street sense and your experience. And that's how you successfully resolved, you know, these high incident problems. Yes, and uh, we were very aware that there was, uh, for one reason or another, there were a lot of entities, especially in middle management on LEPD, uh, deputy chiefs, commanders, captains, uh, uh, a very strong percentage of them. Uh, when uh, SWAT uh, began to respond to incidents, they literally, uh, uh, I think they wanted us to fail. And uh, fortunately, we didn't. Uh, the uh, uh, very first uh, SWAT uh, call out that uh, happened uh, happened with a uh, supervisor who uh, was not the very best choice to be in SWAT. And the bottom line was that an entry was made mixing SWAT people with other uh, Metro platoon people and the sergeant that did it, uh, there was a shooting and it was not a, uh, what we would call, you and I would call a good shooting. Was it lawful? Uh, yes. Uh, was it uh, the reasonable right thing to do if you were a well-trained SWAT officer with uh, the right attitude? And the answer was no, it wasn't. And, uh, the uh, police chief uh, at the time said, I can get six drunk cops to do something like that. I don't need a SWAT team. And uh, uh, the uh, SWAT captain uh, said, hey, I will fix it. And uh, they did. Uh, they moved the people that needed to be moved and put better people in place. And uh, things from then on went very well. Yeah, I, I think with any 
entity, especially SWAT, it was the first one in the world. Any entity that starts up, that spools up initially, it's going to take a long time and a lot of growing pains and figuring how to do the right thing from selection to tactics to weapons to resources to the mindset of the officers, the individuals that you bring in. Uh, I think that's true of any corporation, any entity that I can think of. And you look back on it <clears throat> and people forget all the hard work that people like yourself had to put in and, and the frustration you had to endure for many, many years until SWAT really came into its own. That was very true. I remember my first body armor was just, I, I believe it or not, I have it somewhere. So I got it from salvage, <laughs> but it's one of the, that blue thing, that big blue one that has, it has it's nothing on it. It's just a big blue bulletproof vest. I don't know what it'll stop. It has Los Angeles police on it, but we were given those vests, the Air Force survival vests that were green and you had to dye them black with red dye. And that's what you, and you had to sew, hand sew all your equipment onto it. And uh, I remember after you could tell who had been on a call up because they would have black rings and markings around their neck from sweating from the writ, from the dye being transferred to the skin. I can remember that. And the utilities I had would turn purple after you washed them a number of times. Yeah. Was, <laughs> things uh, have gotten a little better, <clears throat> fortunately. I know that you were a uh, sergeant in SWAT. And um, can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I uh, uh, was a sergeant when I went to SWAT, and uh, uh, I understood what uh, the responsibilities of a sergeant was, and that was to uh, coordinate and put the appropriate people out front and in place and uh, do your job. Uh, and uh, there were police officers that were really skilled. Uh, we've always had really good police officers. And uh, the bottom line was that uh, you've got the best police officers there at the scene and you understand what the problem is. And there's a, I always called it the priority of life. And priority of life were citizens and hostages lives first. And then police officers lives came second. And then suspects, uh, we would never use any force that wasn't necessary, but their survival and their well-being is up to them. Excellent way to put yeah, it. Yeah, it really is. When, when, in terms of leadership, um, one of the things I really respected about you was you knew when to steer the ship and when to back off and just watch it being, you know, being steered by the men underneath. And what qualities, especially in SWAT, for supervisors, would you recommend that departments look for? Because that obviously is going to be something that is coming under a lot of scrutiny in the future. Well, it always has. And uh, the main thing is that uh, for uh, any law enforcement officer of any rank, but certainly uh, the first line supervisor in the field, uh, whether he's working narcotics or special weapons and tactics or patrol, is uh, uh, you utilize the personnel that you have, and it's up to you to know who those uh, people are that can 
accomplish the particular task that's required of them on that day at that time. That means you really have to know uh, your personnel. And I, I think uh, one of the weaknesses of supervision has always been and will always be uh, in business or in the military or in law enforcement that a lot of supervisors don't know their personnel well enough and they don't know who they really need to put into certain places at certain times for the benefit of citizens first and uh, and then certainly for the benefit of the police department. There is a bit of an art to that and uh, you have to know people and you have to uh, know what the problem is and then you have to be able to make choices. The biggest weakness in law enforcement are leaders that stand there and ask the command post what to do. If I could, I'd just like to say that uh, I didn't ask the command post for permission to do anything. Uh, I always thought that was a mistake. It was, uh, you see what has to be done. You're there at the scene. Don't get on the radio and ask somebody that's a mile away or half a mile away, what you do you want me to do? Because this is what's going on. It's do what you see has to be done and then tell the command post what you did. And I think I tried to do that. And I think it was the right way to go. And I think good Metro supervision or good SWAT supervision did that. So uh, I, had personal experience in watching you do that and keeping people off our backs when you had a captain or commander or deputy chief that showed up and decided they're going to drive the train and you'd say you can just step back over here with behind the line and stand over there and you'll just be fine leave us alone i know jeff rogers was like that and i think another yes he was <laughs> yeah oh yeah yeah and i think uh one of the you know a large entity like lepd uh, my experience has been the people that rip up through the ranks are people who have very little field experience. And then suddenly they're being put in charge of critical situations with little or no real field experience. And they're making decisions that are absolutely critical in nature and not uh, taking those responsibilities and placing them in the hands of somebody that has that field tactical experience. I think that's a real mistake. And if you have your nose buried in a departmental manual and you can memorize every section of that as opposed to real police work. I think that's a problem when you uh, become a supervisor down the line because you are going to be faced at some time in police work with a major uh, incident. And it's just, there's no way you're going to rise to that occasion if you simply don't have that experience. I agree. And it all comes, I think, from the mistaken uh, belief that uh, incident command uh, means that uh, the uh, highest ranking incident command level person uh, at the scene of the incident, and by at the scene, they mean the whole area, including the command post and the uh, activity that and the location where the problem exists. And I'm saying the incident, the person at the scene, it has to be the person that's right there at the location where the problem exists. And they should not pass the responsibility for decision-making on to 
the incident commander in a command post. He's not there and he can't see and smell and see what you're uh, confronting. So mm -hmm. that's, a, that's a tactical mistake. It always has been, in my opinion. And the, if the sergeant has to ask uh, how to do something, he shouldn't be there. I, I think, you know, and there are, there have been some staff officers that are good, that, that listen, that back off or that have experience, you know, Hillman, Mike Hillman being one, maybe, uh, you know, that comes to mind right now, not maybe, but uh, that would, you know, worked in SWAT and everything else and understood, okay, this is, these are the people we're going to leave them alone. Everybody else just back off. And you get the, you do have some staff officers that know what they're doing, that have the right background and credentials and pedigree, so to speak. Well, one of the best examples, just what you're talking about, is we had a, an incredible boss when I came to SWAT. His name was Bob Smithson, uh, and I know you're familiar with him. I am. Um, and the bottom line was uh, he was a real leader, and we all admired and respected him. And uh, we didn't want to do his favorite line was, we can't afford to make a mistake because uh, nobody wants to see us around. So if we make a mistake, it'll be a justification for them to end the uh, concept. And so he would constantly say, we can't afford to make a mistake, so don't do it. And uh, he uh, very... Uh, strong leader. We all admired him and worked for him and did exactly what he wanted us to do. Uh, he got transferred. The captain that came to Metro didn't appreciate him. Uh, he, I think, felt threatened by him. And the captain that came to Metro, took over Metro, transferred him out uh, to a administrative position outside of uh, Metro. And put somebody else in place, not knowing that we were going to have the biggest gunfight in law enforcement history, the SLA shootout. And, uh, and uh, in any event, uh, that uh, lieutenant was with me at the back of the location at 1466 East 54th Street. And uh, as soon as we fired tear gas, and as soon as we fired tear gas, the response was full automatic weapons fire from the suspects, which startled all of us because it was very intense. They had full automatic weapons, had a psychic rate of 1,250 rounds per minute. So this sounded uh, pretty significant to us, when, mm -hmm. especially when it's pointed in your direction. But the bottom line was that uh, I turned to tell my lieutenant that we needed the SWAT truck out of the command post and on Compton Avenue right away. We couldn't travel all the way to the command post to get chemical agents and ammunition. And when I turned, his radio and his bullhorn were laying in the grass and he was gone. Later afterwards, I asked uh, Pat McKinley, who was a lieutenant in Newton Street at the time, you know him well. Yes. And I said, uh, did you see him? And I'm not going to mention his name. But mm -hmm. I said, did you see him in the command post? He said, no, he didn't come to the command post. So I have no idea where he went. But I never blamed him because he didn't ask for the job. He was put there 
by the captain, and I blame the captain that put him there. And uh, so he was put into a position where if things went sideways, which they did, uh, he would uh, fail to do his job, and he did. Wow. There's a, you know, when you speak about the SLA shootout, I know there is a historical photograph. People can look it up, and it's black and white, and you'll see the location where the SLA members were located, and you'll see two individuals uh, at a corner, if I believe correctly, corner of a structure perhaps, and one person is laying down and the other one is standing above them, and both of you are oriented toward the suspect's location in the house, and I believe that is you and Mike Hillman, is that correct? Yeah, but that wasn't at the SLA incident. That was oh, looking was for a bad guy named Doc Holliday. He was a uh, a black uh, uh, organized crime kind of guy. And uh, we were looking for him. And uh, to be perfectly honest, Scotty, I was asleep. <laughs> I was laying in the doorway and I fell asleep because we weren't doing anything. And I, I, I've heard that story. I didn't want to brace on that. I've heard <laughs> somebody told me that. And I go, okay, well, I don't know if I want to bring that up, but that, that would be, you could definitely, you're the only person I know that could actually stand straight up fall asleep, take a little fighter nap for 10 minutes, come back and you're spot on. It's a, <laughs> well, we weren't doing anything. So I said, I'm, I'm out of here until yeah. we're going to do something. I know that that photograph, I've seen it a couple of times where it's been attributed to the SLA shootout though. Yeah. No, oh. it was a different incident. Well, that's, that's a good so, correction. Um, so we, we have so a lot of viewers, I think, or listeners who are younger perhaps and don't know very much about the SLA shootout. So can you tell us a little bit about it? Yes. Uh, first of all, the uh, Sumanese Liberation Army or the SLA uh, uh, be began to come into being in Northern California. And it was a gathering of about 50 plus people a lot of them college graduates, uh, all of them, a majority of them, great majority were white. Um, the uh, uh, Symbionese Liberation Army uh, thought of itself as a solution for all of the social problems. And one of the social problems was law enforcement. And uh, they received a lot of them their training in Cuba under oh. Fidel Castro. Uh, bottom line was uh, they brought their uh, training back to the United States. And one of the things that uh, they, as I understood uh, from different people who knew what was going on over there, the intelligence officers and things and people from the FBI other law enforcement agencies, even other than our own. And that was that they trained that law enforcement's deployment was usually weak in the back of the location. And uh, uh, that wasn't the case. Um, we had good deployment at the back. And when the shooting started, they all uh, kicked the floor furnace out of uh, the floor and crawled down through that space that the, crawl, the uh, floor furnace provided and crawled under, underneath the house to the crawl spaces in the back. And there 
training, they were going to come out of the back. And if there was some weak police deployment there, they were going to deal with that with full automatic weapons. And they had uh, uh, grenades, handmade grenades. And in any event, they tried to come out the back and all six of them were killed in the crawl spaces in the back. And um, once we realized that's where they were, we were taking gunfire and couldn't figure out where it was coming from. We didn't see any muzzle flash in the windows or anything. And uh, then uh, we realized, well, there's muzzle flash in the crawl spaces. They're there. And uh, that's where they were all killed. Now, they had many opportunities to surrender. Had they at any time uh, wanted to surrender, they could have. And they were given, I think, 29 different announcements. And uh, they chose the uh, violent effort to escape rather than to surrender. I remember as a working Metro down, I can't remember what division, but along the railroad tracks, there was the very faded Symbionese Liberation uh, had been that logo uh, had been spray painted on the on the walls uh, adjoining the railroad tracks, and I cannot remember what division, but it was very faded. But it was during their time. Obviously, they had put it up there. It was fairly large and prominent. Now, <clears throat> I, they were welcome to it. <laughs> yeah. You know. So let me. You know, when we kind of fast forward, I think to look at like 1984 when the, we had the Olympics, I, I would imagine I came in in 81 and you had been there for a substantial amount of time, obviously. And how transformative was the reality that we may be facing another uh, Munich or OPEC to transform how SWAT gear, not only in the tactics, but the cross training and the equipment and gearing up for the 1984 Olympics. I think that would be fascinating from your perspective to you know get your take on that well we uh, uh we were very aware that uh there were uh, uh lots of middle management people on lapd that really didn't like the concept um and uh so we were and again as i mentioned bob smith and our lieutenant uh constantly saying we can't afford to make a mistake and we tried to do as good a job as we could and not make a mistake um the uh, olympic uh, games coming to la uh, brought a lot of attention to la and of course because there had been uh different problems uh at major events including the olympic games in different places, uh, it was anticipated that the Olympic Games would attract something very violent. Uh, and it never did happen. And the city of LA, the Olympic Games went down pretty uh, calmly. Uh, but the advantage uh, to us was it gave us the opportunity to do an awful lot of training without the Olympic Games, we wouldn't have had the chance to. We were all really waiting and uh, ready in case something really significant happened, but it just didn't unfold that way. Yeah. You know, I, I remember we had what SEAL Team 6, we had Delta, we had the FBI's hostage rescue team, we had uh, LASO, SEB, our counterparts for the sheriffs. Obviously, D team, we had Task Force 160, the Night Stalkers. 
who are the, uh, if people don't know the aviation wing that you see portrayed in um, the Battle of Mogadishu, Black Hawk Down. Uh, and the training, though, I remember that. That was just years and years of really intense training. And yet at the same time, we were out there still doing warrants, still doing crime suppression. And I remember, and we got the new body armor. We got new weapon systems, the HK weapons package and uh, our tactics, you know, just cross training. And I think some of you guys went to work with a 22nd SAS and GSG9, if I'm not mistaken, GIGN as well. But there was a lot of cross training and exchange of ideas uh, in order to get ready for a potential event. And I remember surveying all of the Olympic sites and all the dormitories I did, UCLA and USC. And it was unbelievably extensive, the amount of time and preparation that went into that from our aspect. That's true. And uh, you're dead on. And the, the benefit of all of that was uh, that it made us a better team for the community of Los Angeles and uh, to the benefit of the people that lived in the projects in South LA where most of the uh, violent crime was happening. And as always, the poor people in the poor community are the ones that get victimized first and foremost. And uh, the people in Bel Air and Brentwood, uh, generally speaking, don't, unless, of course, O.J. Simpson shows up. Uh, <laughs> that's another story. Yep. But the bottom line was that uh, uh, the poor people in the poor communities are the ones that suffer all of that. And the only people that really recognize that very well, I think, are are the police officers. And I'm sure firefighters that have to respond to a lot of violent stuff down there with the uh, EMTs, the medical mm-hmm. people. Yeah, it's you know, and, and amazing. I mean, in my day when we went in there, you figure if one of us went down, you called for nobody had tourniquets. Uh, I don't think we ever, ever thought about that. I don't remember having them. And we kind of relied on, well, one of us goes down, we'll just call for an RA rescue ambulance for those who are uninitiated and, uh, you know, stick our finger in the hole and hope for the best. And now they have <laughs> you know, guys that really know what they're doing and trauma kits on them, on their person. And we've already saved lives that way. And just the advancements are, are so, and, and, and it's going to keep on advancing. It, it really does. Every time we get together for these SWAT reunions once every two years, the equipment, techniques, and the people, I think, which is my leading into my next question, I think the people, you could have all the great equipment in the world, but it's the individuals. And what do you look for yourself uh, in a SWAT officer? Uh, for me, for me uh uh, I'm looking for somebody who wants to put themselves uh, in a very life-threatening, difficult situation, and they want to do it every day. And they take a lot of pride in being prepared for that kind of a confrontation. And at the same time, uh, they also have worked very hard to prepare to succeed in that kind of a confrontation. And uh, if uh, you make the right choices, uh, there's some awfully good police officers to pick from always who, and a lot of them are quiet and they, they don't, uh, they may not jump up to and be uh, visible uh, to you at first, uh, 
but if you're a good supervisor and you're paying attention, you're always looking for good personnel. Uh, remember Jerry Tomic? Yes, he's my classmate okay. in the academy. Uh, uh, I, uh, we were given orals uh, for sergeant positions in Metro, not in SLA, but in Metro. And uh, we had three guys from Newton Street Division that had applied to come to Metro. And uh, so we're talking to him. And one of my favorite questions was, uh, who's the best police officer in your division? Whether it was Newton Street, 77th Street, Wilshire, wherever. And uh, if the guy said, well, I think I am, uh, I, I would accept that. And uh, I wouldn't ask any other questions. Uh, if he said, uh, well, I think Jerry Tomic is, uh, then I'd go find out who Jerry Tomic was. And uh, so in any event, three different guys from Newton Street taking orals uh, to come to uh, Metro Division said the name Jerry Tomic. So I got in my car and drove over to Newton Street and asked a sergeant, uh, hey, I'd like to speak to uh, Officer Tomic. And he goes, oh, God darn, Ron, or he used different language right. than that. Sure. And <laughs> he knew what I was there for. Well, yeah. yeah you're, anyway. you're not too and, subtle. And he didn't want to lose from his very best cop. So I met Jerry Tomic. And of course, he looks like he can walk through walls, you know. Mm -hmm. And uh, I said, uh, gee, have you ever thought about coming to Metro? He says, no, I'm gonna, I, I, I want to go to narcotics. And I go, no, you're not. You're coming to Metro. And uh, that's what he did. Yeah, <laughs> I right talked now. him into it, and we got Jerry Tomlin. But one of the things that I, I think needs to be done is sometimes you have to go look for people. If you, uh, they don't always come to you. And there was a good example. Jerry Tomic, we got him because we went and looked for him and then uh, wanted him to come to and uh, promised him he'd have a good time, and he did. Mm -hmm. Oh, he's uh, quite a guy. And he and I were classmates, and I made the mistake, you know, in our days, in order to graduate, you had to pass that combat wrestling. And, you know, Jerry's a big guy, strong. Oh, yes. Uh, he's a bodybuilder, kind of like an Arnold. And I remember that my test came up, and uh, I had been in karate for many, many years and won some tournaments, so we're on the mats. And the mats were, what, half-inch thick on the wood floors, so you got thrashed around a lot. And back then, you could choke each other out all the way. <clears throat> I remember getting a good front kick to him, and he kind of looked at me like, okay, I was nice before, but <laughs> and it's pretty much all I remember. It just got really brutal real fast, and it was like, okay, but my pass, so there. Yeah, well, but, uh, he was a lot bigger than you. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, he, yeah, it was a... Uh, it was one of those athletic. Yeah, it was. Uh oh, because <laughs> he just stood there and looked at me, and, he went, and I went, "Oh no, here it comes." So let me ask you another question. Um, you worked for many years as a federal superior court, you know, police practices and deadly force expert. And what have you seen from when you first started working in the courts as an expert witness to what we are seeing now? If now I know that's a massively broad question, but I think it's one that everybody needs to pay attention to at this point in time, especially those serving in law enforcement. Well, one of the big problems is that uh, we're, we're going, we've always gone through these cycles where 
police uh, uh, are taking an awful lot of abuse uh, from the media, from the detractors, uh, from politicians. Uh, and uh, uh, that happens, it comes and goes, depending upon the political climate. And we're in one of those downturns now where uh, law enforcement is uh, looked at with uh, um, a significant amount of disdain by the media and uh, also uh, the politicians. And so it's not a, a, a real good time for the uh, uh, law enforcement community and the image they have in the community. Uh, the, uh, the cycle will change because what we see happening is we see an awful lot of violence in Portland. Uh, we see it in different cities back east now. And uh, things get out of hand and people that shouldn't be getting hurt get hurt, including police officers who aren't able to protect themselves as they should, thanks to sometimes bad leadership. Um, uh, it will change. Uh, and I know it looks like it's only going to get worse and worse, and it may, but it will change and it will swing back. And the reason it will is because the powerful, the elite, the politicians, the wealthy, uh, the people that uh, are benefiting from a, a peaceful, uh, democratic American society. By democratic, I'm not talking politically. Uh, political party. I'm talking about uh, democracy itself. Um, those people, all of a sudden, who benefit from the peace and tranquility, uh, and they're very powerful people financially and politically, all of a sudden they get scared because things are falling apart so fast, they see that they may be uh, suffering from it. And once uh, it's no longer the poor people in South LA or someplace like that in other cities, but it's them that might suffer. Uh, they demand that something be done. That's an interesting take on it. And I know that, uh, you know, it's for me, very frustrating. I think too, uh, sometimes the training that officers get in, uh, I've mentioned this before, you know, not only in classes, but to in, in court cases is that, the most watershed event in an officer's career will probably be the application of deadly force, and yet it is the one aspect of training that we put the least amount of time and effort and funding into. And the individuals that are running it aren't necessarily qualified to do so, have no background or experience, and yet you know it just it keeps on going on and on. And it goes back to you. You know, telling me, and that this is why I trained so hard in my days, and I know that every every guy in D team did. We didn't want to let down our partners. We didn't want to let down D team, the department, and people like yourself. And when you said "don't mess up," and those weren't the words, but it was like you know, basically get it together and just do do the you know, give me a hundred and ten percent. And that's why D-Team has a reputation it does. And yet the four field grade officers that are out there have such a nominal amount of training, and then they're thrown into these high-stress situations. And 
you know, the outcome is pretty much inevitable and, and it's unfortunate and tragic. And that's why, you know, I defend officers when I believe that they're trying to do the right thing, even though the outcome isn't great, they're still trying to do the right thing with the amount of training and background and knowledge and expertise that they have. Would you agree? I definitely agree with that. One of the things that you see now is, as an example, is uh, there's two words, reasonable and necessary. And now there's a big uh, kerfuffle, if you will, about, uh, well, officers need to use force when it's necessary, not just when it's reasonable. And uh, to me, what I'd be teaching uh, if I were a supervisor or a trainer was those two words are exactly the same thing. If it's reasonable, it's necessary. If it's necessary, it's reasonable. Mm -hmm. And there is no difference. So if somebody wants to try to separate the two and create two different uh, levels of uh, uh, how we use force and when we use it, uh, don't accept that. Uh, just say, hey, uh, I do reasonable things because it's necessary. And I wouldn't be doing reasonable things if it wasn't necessary. So uh, that's the a two great, were cohabitive. Yeah, that's a wonderful point and extremely mm -hmm. well stated. You know, and now they're trying to throw an imminent. Well, you know, imminent is that which is about to transpire uh, in the immediate future. Well, what is that? And how do you define that? And uh, yeah, it's become a big uh, kerfuffle is a great word, but yeah, it's, it's just become a big furball now and everybody's scrambling trying to figure out how we're going to do this. And there are going to be some situations where the only uh, reasonable uh, use of force option is the application of deadly force. I'm sorry. Um, or you just, stand back and let it happen and then put a warrant out and let the detectives go find the guy. I don't know. It's, it's frustrating to me. No, it, it, is. It, it is frustrating, uh, but it's never going to go away. There's always going to be different levels of different uh, perspectives, politics, uh, ideology, the people that just, uh, for some reason, ideologically, they can't stand the concept of law enforcement. Mm -hmm. And uh, if that's the case, uh, you're never going to be able to satisfy them. So don't try. Uh, try to do the right thing for the right reasons. And uh, doing the right thing for the right reasons will work. It will. Absolutely. What are some of your most memorable times when you were in SWAT? If you have a couple. Well, I just before I got there, one of my memorable times was that uh, uh, I wanted to go there uh, and work. And uh, the Lieutenant Bob Smithson uh, picked another guy who will remain nameless, but he screwed up the very first SWAT call up big time. And uh, so Bob Smithson said, uh, well, I'm, I want you to come to work in SWAT. And I said, uh, no, I'm not interested now. And I woke up on the floor. He choked me out. <laughs> You're kidding. Well, that's a, well, that's a, that, that, that's a wonderful selection technique. And he said, uh, you're coming to SWAT. And I go, yes, sir. <laughs> 
Wow. I like <laughs> I that. I remember one. Bob Smithson was a big guy. Yeah. And uh, he didn't well, tell that's... me he was going to do that or I would have run. That's hysterical. <laughs> Any other times? And well, that was that was one. Uh, the uh, the thing, most significant thing uh, when Richard Kent was killed in the Lucky Auto Supply, and that was uh, he was my, uh, my one of my first partners, and when I was on probation uh, down there, and uh, uh, that taught me a heck of a lesson because he was an outstanding police officer and you go gee how that happened and it was one of those things where he walked in on an armed robbery as I mentioned earlier and uh, to buy flashlight batteries and he got to the counter uh, to ask for flashlight batteries and bad guy just pulled the gun up and shot him in the chest and then ran out Uh, I was working patrol uh, and uh, so my car was uh, just south of 87th Place and Broadway where Lucky Auto Supply was. And uh, traffic was real heavy because it was Christmas time. It was December, Christmas shoppers. And uh, I heard uh, Jeff Poor, his partner, say shots fired 87th and Broadway and uh, need help code three. And he had heard the shots go off in the store and recognized they weren't backfires or anything. He, you know, he was a smart guy and knew they were shots and knew that Dick Kent was in there. Now this white guy comes running out and runs across uh, Broadway uh, onto 87th street going running westbound. And uh, so both Jeff Four and I chased after him uh, he got to the getaway car, which was parked, uh, and the lights were on, and the driver was in the car, and he leaned over the top of the car and shot at us, and we shot at him. Uh, one of us hit him in the upper clavicle. He said, okay, okay, and he laid down on the ground. I don't know who hit him, but probably uh, Jeff Poor did, because I wasn't that great a shot. <laughs> <laughs> especially at that time. Huh. In any event, uh, he laid down on the ground. The guys that was driving rolled out of the car, said, I've done nothing. I haven't done anything. And we took him into custody. And he, Jeff said, hey, uh, we handcuffed him. And Jeff said, uh, what happened to that officer in there? And uh, the suspect said, I didn't see any officer. And Jeff said, hey, come over to the Lucky Auto Supply. I'll beat you over there. Bring them over there. So I walked them over, crossed uh, Broadway. And uh, when I got into Lucky Auto, uh, I could hear Jeff saying, uh, talk to me, Dick. Talk to me, please. And I walked uh, the bad guys to the back counter. And I put them down on their knees at the back counter. And uh, uh, Jeff was uh, talking to Dick Kent, and I could see that Dick Kent was was dead. And uh, then all of a sudden, I heard Jeff say, UMF. And uh, he stood up and had his gun out, and he was going to shoot uh, the bad guys and 
So I was kind of stuck. So I grabbed the gun and I had my, it was a revolver, fortunately. Mm -hmm. And I had my two hands around the revolver and around the cylinder. So uh, he's trying to pull the gun away. Uh, He had one hand free. So he was punching me saying, let go, you know, and he was, he was, uh, he was hysterical because he was heartbroken. And uh, in any event, uh, a sergeant got there just shortly thereafter, like 10 seconds, but it seemed longer than that to me. And uh, he came running in and he goes, stop it, Jeff, stop it and grab Jeff. And Jeff just sat down on the floor, was in tears. And that was the end of that. But it was uh, one of those moments you don't forget. Yeah. I don't know how you would. And, uh, you know, that's a tragedy of uh, police work. We've had a lot of officers that you and I have both known that we've lost through the years, partners. Oh, and yes. And, you, you know, you take on this this job, and that's very much a uh, a possibility. Were you? Did you say you were on probation then? Yes, I was. Oh, my on probation and been out in the field for about a month. And, oh my goodness! And uh, so it was a it was a a very valuable lesson. Yeah. And it was you know hey uh, don't give bad guys an even chance and uh, right. take care of business. Uh, know the law and don't break it. Yeah. Uh, do the lawful thing, and the lawful thing is the ethical thing. So you know I, I don't separate those two. Right. And so if you're doing the lawful thing, you're fine. Yeah, yeah. And, and uh, it, it, it it works for everybody sure. to do that. Yeah. Well, Ron, I, again, thank you. That's a real hard yeah. story to tell. Yeah, thank and you, thank you so that. much for sharing that. Yeah. Um, it, in terms of law enforcement, what would you seek to, or what advice would you give to an individual who is thinking about going into law enforcement in this day and age? Well, I... Uh, my um, advice to anybody that would be going into law enforcement at any time now or any time is, hey, uh, you have to know what the rules are and know what the law is. You have to understand what the policy of your department is. You have to know your partners and you have to know your supervision and you have to know how to do your work and do it right. Uh, and you have to take all of that into consideration. So if you have an idiot supervisor or a weak supervisor, don't expect anything other than stupid out of them. That's all you'll ever get. And uh, if you have a partner that's got some kind of an issue or a problem, avoid them. Uh, If you have to work with them for that night, that's fine. And uh, it's a good idea to be Uh, very honest and say, hey, uh, I'm concerned about you and this is what concerns me. So uh, let's not have any of that tonight. Mm -hmm. And go ahead and address it right away before it comes up because it'll be too late. Um, That's very sound advice. It is. What about, you know, what about officers who have supervisors who they feel they don't know what they're doing or there's some inadequacy? How do they deal with that? Uh, it's uh, very important that you know your job 
and you understand that uh, a weak supervisor can be very damaging to you and your career. So you have to be aware of that and have to pay attention to it. And therefore, you have to really know your job and be smart. Okay. And uh, good, good police officers are smart police officers and None of us have, have lived a perfect life in law enforcement. You know, geez, did I ever do anything that could have gotten me in trouble? Heck yes. Mm-hmm. You go to work and uh, you're working two jobs and you've got a couple of kids, they're little uh, children and uh, working two jobs, you're getting about four hours of sleep maybe. And then you don't get any sleep if you have to go to court that day. Right. Because court starts at nine in the morning. And so you have to go and then. Uh, hang out until your case is called. And so you go without sleep. Uh, Life isn't perfect. And now you're supposed to confront some kind of a confusing and chaotic circumstance and some idiot that's yelling in your face. And uh, are you going to be perfect all the time? And it's pretty hard to do. Yeah. I haven't met anybody that did that yet. Uh, Neither have I. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, when you talk about, uh, I think, you know, life after L, I know that a lot of people literally, their whole sense of identity is being a police officer. It doesn't matter if it's just LAPD, but any de- any department. Uh, and in fact, this is true in overseas police that we've worked and trained with. And you're uh, big John McCarthy, your son, who is a big guy, by the way, for those of you who don't know, is a referee for Bellator in that MMA fighting. And uh, so is there life after retirement uh, from your perspective? Because I remember going to your retirement party, which was just wall-to-wall people up at the academy. And uh, it was quite an affair. So what do you think about life after retirement for those that are nearing that that end? Well, one of the things that uh, I, I know is true and I was told this, and I can't recall exactly who told me, but I know I'm uh, not smart enough to come up with it myself. So I know I had gotten this advice, and that is, hey, what you were, that's over. Uh, now it's time to move on and make a place in your uh, life uh, for yourself. And whether you're going to be uh, in law enforcement or in some kind of private business, uh, put your energy into that and do the best you can to prepare for it before you retire. Once you do retire, go after what you think is your pathway and really work at it. Don't expect anybody to be impressed with you because of what you might have done 15 or 20 mm-hmm. years ago. Yep. And if you do that, uh, you'll succeed. And um, I've had a lot of fun in my life uh, working and uh, uh, having uh, the opportunity to have uh, my own business and, and uh, then being in partnership with my wife and then my uh, my son, Todd. Uh, uh, it was fun and very satisfying, very gratifying, just as much as law enforcement was. Mm-hmm. I think that's, uh, I think it's so important because I know a lot of officers you know, once they leave, and I think your advice is, is very, very, extremely sound and that you have goals and that keeps you going and you have something else, passions that you have and the people that don't just kind of, uh, it doesn't go well for them, generally speaking. No. 
And uh, one thing you don't want to do is, you know, get into the bad habit of drinking too much or something like that. And, yeah. and I've seen guys do that. And it's, uh, being Irish, I knew I had a propensity for stupidity already. So I made <laughs> sure that I didn't <laughs> overdo the drinking thing. Well, I think as it go, God invented whiskey, so, so the Irish would not rule the world, if that, I'm not mistaken. <laughs> Gee, I like that. <laughs> <laughs> so I have a question about civilians, because a lot of our audiences are probably civilian listeners. And do you have any advice for them in terms of use of force? Because I know you're, you have been a use of force expert witness many times. Well, in, the, in uh, terms of the citizens confronting situations, yes, you mean? Yes, yes. Um, the, uh, first of all, I would always suggest that uh, women uh, have a way of defending themselves. Right. And uh, uh, they should have it uh, with them and have it... Uh, very handy and anticipate that something very severe could happen to them all of a sudden. Um, uh, leaving a store during Christmas shopping and it's uh, it's uh, nine o'clock at night and the stores have closed and uh, you're hurrying to the car to get back home and you've got some packages and your purse, et cetera, and all of this. You got to be aware of the idiot that's walking in the parking lot and he's looking at you and he's one car, uh, car aisle over and uh, be aware and just uh, make sure that you are knowing what's going on around you. Right. And uh, don't be an easy victim. Uh, exactly. That's the main thing, to yep. be alert. Because if that son of a gun is looking at you, you can say, hey, leave me alone and yell it out. And that will cause him to turn and walk away. Right. Yeah, exactly. And if you're aware and you see it. So be, being aware of the vulnerabilities that each of us have. Right. And now I'm old, so I look like I am, you know, 84 mm -hmm. years old. So I'm a putz. <laughs> no, yeah, I got it. You're in pretty good shape. I'm not going to mess it. Uh, yeah. no, I'm, I'm 84. And uh, so I, I'm aware of what's going on around me much mm -hmm. more than I was when I was 44. Right. So. Sure. That makes Absolutely. perfect sense. Um, so I have a question um, about Scott Reitz. You were Scott Reitz's supervisor for some years, correct? Yes. What can you tell us about him? What stands no, no, out no, in no, your mind no, no, most no. about Scott Reitz? I do not want to go in that direction. <laughs> this is not good. He uh, didn't know I was going to ask this question. <laughs> no, I didn't. No, this is actually, I'm being blindsided here. This is not good. Uh, it's uh, one, of, one of the things that uh, uh, happens is that uh, you get a pretty good idea of who somebody is. And... Uh, what they can do, and if they have limitations, what they are. And Scott was a lot like John Helms, uh, and that's a heck of a compliment to yes, both John Helms and Scott. And uh, and that is, uh, uh, he was uh, always trying to be capable. And 
Scott was always in great physical condition. Uh, he was mechanically extremely proficient with the tools of the trade, right? Whether it be uh, a pistol, a shotgun, whatever weapon, uh, a rifle, uh, he made sure that he was very uh, competent with all of his tools. And uh, I just was always very impressed with, like I was with John Elms, uh, with uh, the fact that he knew how to make decisions in chaotic environments and he knew how to uh, handle bad guys. And if bad guys wanted to get hurt and uh, if they wanted to work at it, he'd help them. And uh, that's okay. (laughs) So, um, and he was a lot of fun to have around because he would do anything you would ask. Oh, that's good to hear. It's good to know as his wife that he'll do anything you ask. No, that's not good. That's that's bad karma coming down, sister. Ron, I I had so much fun working under you. And uh, one of the stories that I'll tell people is I'm not a big fan of heights. If you put me on a building, and I've done the Australian repels, the fast ropes out of the Blackhawks, everything else, but I would want to be hooked up to about 60 anchor points. And I remember down at Piper Tech once, you got on, it was four or five stories up, and you stood on the ledge with your back toward the ledge, your heels actually right on the edge of the ledge talking to us about repelling and everything. And I'm just looking at you, and you couldn't get me within six feet of the edge. And I was just watching you, and I thought, this guy is this, okay. This is like ice water going through your veins. Either that or you couldn't see just how close you were to the edge. But I remember you sitting there for about 10 minutes talking to us, and I'm thinking, if you step back one half an inch, you're going to go. And, uh, you know, that's just one of the many, many stories I have. But I think we had a great time back then. I think uh, we had great people in there, uh, got great memories together, uh, not only in training, not only in actual call-ups, and there's so much of a history to it. And it was, it was an era that will never be repeated. Not to that extent, I don't think. And I can't thank you enough for having the opportunity to, uh, to work with you. I really yeah. mean that from yeah, the bottom I, of my heart. And I have to also add that uh, Sergeant McCarthy, that Scott has talked about you so many times over the years, you have been one of the people that he most admires. And, you know, he's talked about your sterling leadership and, you know, it's it just what an honor it was to work with you, and I, I want you to know that because you have you are really one of his favorites. So it's it's an honor for us to have you here. Uh, feeling you so went much. both ways. He was one of mine, and he wasn't just one of mine. All the supervisors uh, and uh, we had good lieutenants back yes. then, and, and uh, they all had a lot of faith in him, and and uh, so it went both ways. Thank you so much for being with us. Well, thank you. Thanks, boss. And that concludes this episode of With Deadly Force podcast. To stay in touch, follow us on social media at International Tactical. We'd love to hear from you. If you have questions or for any topics you would like us to discuss, send an email to podcast at withdeadlyforce.com. And if you enjoyed this episode, you can help support the podcast by subscribing and leaving a review. Thank you and stay safe.